Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library. It's lovely to see so many familiar and friendly faces here with us this evening. Welcome. My name's Cathy Pilgrim. I'm the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division here at the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. We're very grateful for our supporters for making this evening's event possible. In particular, we'd like to acknowledge the Australian Government for supporting the Treasures Curator through Catalyst, the Australian Arts and Culture Fund. We also thank our wonderful National Library patrons who are supporters of the Treasures Gallery Access Programs, of which tonight is one of those. We're delighted to be presenting in Cook's Wake, Tarpa Treasures from the Pacific, as our current Treasures Gallery Collections in Focus exhibition. The exceptional items have been carefully selected from the library's own collections, and some have rarely been seen since the voyages of Cook and his contemporaries. In Cook's Wake explores the encounters of Cook and other navigators with the people of the Pacific Islands through the tarpa or the bark cloth they were gifted or collected. Tonight, the library's curator, library's treasures curator, Nat Williams, will reveal some of the stories that he has artfully woven throughout this exhibition. Please join me in welcoming Nat. Thank you, Kathy. Well, tonight I want to bring some stories from the Pacific to life for you. They span the period of European exploration in that vast ocean and feature Cook and his epic voyages and the subsequent incursion of Western civilization and the missionaries. The stories amplify moments illustrated in the Cook exhibition, intersect with his personnel and those that voyaged with him <clears throat> and after him. Without doubt, as the Cook in the exhibition, uh, Cook in the Pacific exhibition demonstrates, Cook's legacy is freighted with contemporary anxiety over the dispossession of indigenous peoples from their lands and ways throughout the Pacific area. Without his voyages, however, we here in Canberra would not have the remarkable collections we can now exhibit and use to explain the difficult histories they represent. So my talk will cover an overview of the European discovery of tarpa cloth, discovery of tarpa cloth prior to Cook's voyages, a review of some of the material collected and illustrated in the wake of Cook's voyages, um, and the affecting story of the Hawaiian royal couple whose tragic demise in London in 1824 led to the acquisition of material illustrating their passage from one world to another. I'll be available in the gallery afterwards for questions and I'm more than happy to talk to you down there about other things in the exhibition. I can't talk about everything tonight. And um, in particular, I'm not specifically going to talk about the big carpet cloth, which is a great highlight of the gallery, and which my colleague and friend, uh, Crispin Howarth from the National... who's just walked in... And Erica Ryan, who's just walked in. So Crispin Howth, Curator of Pacific Art at the uh, National Gallery of Australia, has written very eloquently about the big carpet cloth, and I urge you uh, to uh, uh, seek that out. 
And um, I would like to acknowledge the support of both uh, Crispin and Erica Ryan, our um, manager of Australian printed collections here at the library, who've both contributed significantly to the research and writing and have been great sounding boards for this project over the past couple of years. It's been a great pleasure working with you both. Um, it's been a true and very effective collaboration between institutions and people. I urge you all to get a copy of the exhibition catalogue if you haven't got one. They're in the Treasures Gallery and you can have one for a small or not so small if you choose, donation. So um, get one before they disappear. Right. In Cook's wake, Tarpa Treasures would be rather diluted but for the collections of Rex Nankervell. The amazing bounty accumulated by the collector over six decades in London whilst dreaming of his distant past on the beaches of Aotearoa, New Zealand, fills this exhibition eloquently, poignantly, and in the case of the tarpa cloth masterpieces he collected, also fills it elegantly. I want to publicly acknowledge Rex Nankervell, the extraordinary collector and storyteller who has been occupying my mind for some years now. Without his death, uh, gifts, his ex this exhibition would simply not be possible. I also acknowledge the perspicacity and driven collecting of John Alexander Ferguson and Edward Augustus Petherick, um, whose acquisitions also feature in, in Cook's Wake. To me, these three men, two New Zealanders and, and an Englishman, are heroic figures whose collecting building activities were both exemplary and visionary. So, to commence, before the world knew cloth, there was tarpa, or more properly, bark cloth. Tarpa was produced throughout the Pacific from the inner bark of trees grown and cultivated by its inhabitants. The main trees used for tarpa production were the paper mulberry, the breadfruit, and the wild fig. Over thousands of years, bark cloth followed migration paths, having originated in Asia, where it was first produced, and thence into the islands of the Pacific, where its production flourished. <clears throat> By the late 18th century, tarpa was omnipresent through the Pacific, uh, in the islands encountered by James Cook and his fellow travellers. Its name was an early linguistic appropriation, along with tattoo and taboo, by Cook and his sailors. Tarpa was used for both clothing and household furnishings. It wrapped newborn babies and the deceased. It was lit as wicks in oil lamps. Sometimes scented, it became a kind of sensuous second skin for the wearer. The repetitive thud of the tarpa bast being beaten into submission by legions of women filled the ears of Polynesian people for centuries. It was commented upon by Europeans visiting these communities. One, visitors, uh, one visitor compared it to the familiar sound of grain being threshed in England's fields. Tarpa was presented to important people on significant ceremonial occasions, and it formed a key part of the rich performances staged by Polynesian people and witnessed by Cook and those that came before and after him. After Cook's shocking death, at Kealakekawa Bay on Valentine's Day, 1779, his remains were, and I quote, decently wrapped in a large quantity of fine new cloth, and they were delivered by the Hawaiians to his grieving men. Tarpa cloth worked its way into all manner of exchanges throughout the Pacific. The representation of tarpa and its many uses as an outcome of these Pacific voyages is a strength of the library's pictorial collection. 
and numerous works depicting exotic people wearing tarpa cloth visualised after the original scenes were witnessed are included in this exhibition. These depictions give a sense of the profusion of imagery circulating to a public hungry for paradisiacal visions of the noble savage in their Pacific dreamscapes. Tamed and rendered safely into two dimensions, the realities of this exploration was rarely imagined from the recipient's petition, position, and the lack of awareness of language, cultural protocols and hierarchies often made for damaging engagements. The English brought trinkets, death, venereal disease and their words, and ultimately Christianity. While the local people traded or gave up parts of their cultural largesse, tarpa, objects, costume and their words. The production of tarpa was, however, maintained in many islands, even though European fabrics and clothing began to take hold and traditional uses of tarpa diminished. Depicted by Cook's artist, Tarpa was described by his men and collected widely by his sailors and those above him in the Great Cabin. Valued for its sacred and aesthetic qualities, the variety in form and design attest to the creativity and industry of the Pacific people over centuries. It is not surprising that large amounts of bark cloth were gifted, transacted or appropriated from the original owners, then to make their long voyage to Britain and Europe. More often than not, it was dissected as the human cargo of some later expeditions would also be, to be circulated among collectors, museums, missionaries, friends and families. The aura of the Arcadian worlds of the Pacific could be experienced and the design studied by the new owners. And if there was money and some prestige to be made in trading and in publishing these TARPA trophies, then why not? <clears throat> There is a strong focus in the exhibition on Hawaiian kapa cloth, given its representation in the rare sample books produced in England by brothers Alexander and Harry Shaw after Cook's Pacific voyages. Remarkable detective work undertaken by Erica Ryan into the production of these fascinating and highly collectible books has unearthed uh, considerable new material, giving these volumes a much clearer provenance and history. And I really do urge you to read her fascinating and groundbreaking essay in the catalogue. The library is fortunate to own four copies of the Alexander Shaw books in the original and rebound formats. These exquisite books uh, are the artefacts around which the exhibition has been imagined and constructed. The library also holds this volume, uh, a volume of cut-down bark samples in its Nankavell collection. The Shaw's success in printing and circulating their intriguing volumes in two issues, produced in 1787 and 1807, led to the production of so-called snippet books, which were created by collectors or dealers cutting fragments of tarpa into smaller pieces, thereby effectively creating a new version of the book that was a simulacrum of the original book, but without the pirated essay contributed by Shaw's editor. The library's manuscript a snippet book entitled Patterns of Cloth Made and War by the Natives of the Southeast Islands is visually rich and engaging. Its elegant handwritten listing of samples, their uses and place of production largely accords in slightly abbreviated form with Shaw's sometimes spurious printed list. And it has the same ordering of tarpa specimens. However, what is unusual about the library's manuscript version is that rather than stopping at 39 descriptions, as in the printed list, 
Uh, it goes on to list a total of 52 specific examples. For, for example, the looping hand describes tarpa from the Sandwich Islands used in boxing matches, a curious fact not mentioned in the published account. So what is the context of this unusual and rather beautiful small book? Within the orbit of tarpa cloth books, there exist versions known as pre-shore books. These are manuscript versions which seem to lay out the text and give typographic directions for the final printed volumes. Is our manuscript copy in some way related to these interesting variants on the theme? Possibly. It's interesting to consider the provenance to try to sort out this mystery. The manuscript sn snippet book seems to have been acquired by Nankerville from the Reverend Park in 1965. Park was the vicar for Martin in Cleveland, uh, Middlesbrough, uh, Cook's birthplace. He had inherited Cook items from an associate of the Bolkow family, but decided to part with them in his retirement as he wrote, there was no place in Martin where they could be kept in safety. You wouldn't have thought there was such a burglary problem there, but perhaps there was. Perhaps the library's most remarkable artefact, James Cook's Endeavour Journal, MS1, was acquired in 1923 for £5,000 at the auction of Cook artefacts from the collection of Henry Bolkow MP, a prominent fig figure in Middlesbrough. It had come from Elizabeth Cook. It seems likely that the Nankerville snippet book came also from this source. Could it be then that this unique volume was some kind of precursor to the pre-shore books? It's an interesting idea and possibly given maybe a little credence by the fact that 20% of the 70 snipped pieces included appear to show signs of being carefully stitched together, as you can see here perhaps on the slide. I hope you can see it. Um, could this have been a private research project undertaken by somebody close to Cook then? As can be seen here, Cook's widow, Elizabeth, was a keen sewer and had access to both the ethnographic information required and samples collected. In time, further research may reveal more about this beautiful little book. And this is the details from the waistcoat downstairs in the exhibition, uh, Cook exhibition. Of course, 150 years before Cook, the Dutch voyagers, Le Maire and Schouten, had been the first Europeans to visit the Tongan Islands. They observed and mentioned tarpa being worn and recognised that it was fabricated from bark. Le Maire recorded that the local people wore clothes of bark with which they covered their intimate parts. Schouten mentioned the funny colour of their protective clothes. However, this engraved image accompanying Schouten's account depicted naked Tongans on a double hull canoe. In 1643, Abel Tasman visited the Tongan island of Middleburg and commented, to the king's, uh, commented on the king's tattooed men who presented him with food and gifts, a white flag and a, and a cloth uh, of bark from trees. Here, the ritual of tarpa, known locally as natu, was an important transaction, but the imagery arising from the voyage depicting Tong Tongans wearing plant fibre skirts rather than Natu is to be seen on, on, on the screen. It is possible that this is an allusion to either a folded mat, a finely woven mat, or perhaps tarpa cloth. Um,
125 years later, the Englishman Captain Samuel Wallace aboard HMS Dolphin blasted his way into Tahiti, or King, George's, uh, King George III's island, as he named it in June 1767. He stayed for a month in Matabai Bay. The arrival of the Dolphin was met with a huge number of Tahitians in many canoes who began by offering gifts in exchange for nails, beads, etc. While girls on board canoes were making, and it's described, making all the lascivious motions and playing all the wanton trip, tricks imaginable. This remarkable scene is described by Wallace in his journal, along with the decimation wrought when, by his guns when the Tahitians began to sling stones at them. This image uh, on the left of uh, the Tahitian Queen Oberea greeting Wallace and his men while holding a placatory branch of greenery, apparently acceding to his military might, is one in a long line of such images in which British power is asserted over recently discovered people whose lands were being appropriated. The image is a neat visual shorthand used to claim authority, to assert that peaceful negotiations were concluded and to garner public support. It's interesting, I think, to compare it to the Governor Arthur's Proclamation Board, uh, which we have had in the Treasures Gallery and was produced 60 years later during the Black War in Tasmania. The Oberea image was apparently derived from this earlier Wallace drawing in the State Library of New South Wales collection, showing the Queen clad in tarpa and again holding a piece of greenery <clears throat> as she greets Wallace and his men. This drawing is presumably the earliest English image of tarpa cloth being worn. The exchange economy which developed during the Dolphin crew's stay, whereby sexual favours of the young Tahitian women were traded for nails uh, from the ship, left the ship in danger of imploding and the practice had to be prohibited on pain of flogging. This set a uh, pattern for future voyages as well. Inventively, the local people, however, used the nails uh, and metal implements gained by barter to facilitate the further embellishment of their tarpa designs and carved objects. In his poetical essay, The Dolphin's Barber, Roger Richardson eloquently describes encountering tarpa cloth and its curious manufacture, as you can read on the screen here. And the, the piece that I note particularly is, it's neither wove nor spun, but made from wild and simple plants. And then he goes on, but, it, but, no, but no, it's neither flax nor silk, cotton nor wool, wool, though white as milk, and wrought with matchless pains. Some coarse, some fine, and painted o'er. So he's, you know, really giving quite a nice um, description of this material, which they're quite interested in. Um, they were interested in how it was worn, how it was not worn, and the remarkable scale of the pieces. Quoted here is about two by 42 metres. That's a sizable piece of cloth, as you can imagine, the size of a swimming pool, a narrow swimming pool. Um, in George Robertson's account of the voyage, he describes how tarpa was given to a lieutenant, six large bales of the country cloth from six to eight yards in each bale were offered, but refused as it was of lit very little use to us and certainly a great loss to them. This transaction, which is finally worked through, and they do take it, was conducted a little more than a week after arriving on the island, and it suggests both that the local people quickly understood how to negotiate with the British and that there was honour in these negotiations. 
Cook chose King George's Island at Wallace's suggestion as the location to observe the transit of Venus, the primary purpose of his Endeavour voyage. But only four months after Cook's departure, Bougainville, uh, the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the globe, also briefly visited Tahiti. He was unaware of the earlier visit by Wallace. In the nine days he spent at Hitia Lagoon, Bougainville was captivated, as were his sailors, by the splendour of the islands and the sensuosity of its people. In a land where bread literally grew on trees, it was easy to wax lyrical about its charms. Bougainville named it Nouvelle Citerre, the imagined birthplace of Aphrodite, and, as voyagers tend to do, he claimed it for France. Tarpa cloth was presented to Bougainville in some quantities. Sadly, it appears that much of this material became dispersed during the French Revolution. Bougainville's post-voyage musing, published on the role of man living in harmony with nature, was quite influential. Accompanying Bougainville was Philibert de Commerson, uh, botanist and naturalist to the king. Rather sneakily, Commerson had taken his disguised lover, Jean Beret, with him as an assistant to collect natural history specimens and compete much of the legwork for him as Jean, because he was infirm and not up to it. She was discovered in Tahiti, but as her work was valued, her presence was tolerated. I don't think there was much else they could have done at that point, but anyway. Um, on returning to France, uncelebrated, but Beret was the first French woman and the first woman to ever circumnavigate the world. In Commerson's journals held in the Natural History Museum in Paris, the naturalist carefully described and sketched the Tahitian scenes around him, producing it, uh, pronouncing it a utopia. As seen here within the pages of his narrative, are some rather naively documented images of tarpa cloth and descriptions of some of its uses. For the first time, Europeans could view the ridged tarpa cloth beta, known in Tahitian as an ai, labelling it as baton pour faire la toile, or a baton for making the cloth. Commerson also drew an aube ou poncho des hommes, or a, a teputa, a form of tarpa poncho commonly worn by Tahitian men, and you can see both of them on the screen. Thomason is one of the first Europeans to record the prevalence and significance of tarpa cloth in the Pacific. Many others were to follow. Between 1768 and his death in 1779, James Cook crossed and recrossed the vast Pacific Ocean. Over the space of 11 years, he and his retinue sailed epic distances exploring, but also exploiting, charming, and being charmed by the Pacific Islanders they encountered. At first, Cook perceived it as an almost limitless ocean dotted with remote islands and native people or Indians. But he came to understand that to the people living there, the network of islands formed a sort of extended community. Cook's question, written into his final journal, how shall we account for this nation spreading itself so far over this vast ocean, suggests a growing understanding of sorts. The sea was not simply an absence occupying the space between these islands, but rather a set of navigable threads that wove them together. The inclusion of the mnemonic Marshall Islands Rebelib stick chart graphically demonstrates the other forms of knowledge existing within the Pacific prior to colonisation. The library is lucky enough to have two. 
the exhibited chart on the left was used by the Marshallese to navigate the Pacific Ocean by canoe. It indicates islands marked by cowrie shells and sailing conditions in both the eastern and western chains of the Marshall Islands. Unlike Cook, these navigators and those they trained memorised their bamboo charts and sailed without them, intimately aware of the crests and the refractions of the ocean waves surrounding them. Cook's interactions with those he met were governed by naval orders, which he resolutely and literally executed. He was to observe the genius, temper, disposition and number of any people encountered. However, Cook was also operating under the hints offered by Lord Morton, President of the Royal Society, to him, Joseph Banks and crew. In contrast with the naming and claiming expected by the Navy, Cook's directions from Morton were, as they say today, more nuanced. The Navy asked Cook to cultivate a friendship and alliance with the locals through trinket giving. And he was also to encourage traffic with them. And traffic they did in surprising um, quantities. Barcloth from different interactions with people met in islands throughout the Pacific stimulated the serious interest, uh, in English interest in tarpa and other artificial curiosities. Tarpa, kapa, siapo, hiapo, natu, ua, mahute and mazi. The cadence and variety of these names for bark cloth echoes the diversity of the extraordinary designs of this Pacific staple and the uses to which it was put. Tarpa created for a wide range of purposes, symbolic, prosaic, diplomatic, was frequently mentioned by Cook and Parkinson, or toot and patin, as they were known to the locals. Um, uh, and they were also uh, frequently mentioned by their fellow voyagers. Um, although preoccupied with matters of state, Cook still manages to mention tarpa cloth 60 times in his Endeavour journal. The 25-year-old Banks, with more time on his hands, mentions tarpa about 130 times and the rituals of giving it, and in the case of Tahiti, uh, the erotic charge of being presented with yards and yards of tarpa by, by young women pre uh, uh, presenting and performing sensuous dances. Banks' description of watching a young Tahitian woman wrapped in tarpa, gradually unrolling herself before him and then naked, presenting the cloth to him is the stuff of fantasy. <clears throat> and that's what the description here, but this is in Cook's hand in the manuscript uh, MS1 downstairs. Queen Oberea, Banks' flame, uh, described by Parkinson as a, a fat, bouncing, good-looking dame who had a great quantity of cloth of all colours, subsequently invited Banks to spend the night on her double canoe, an encounter in the course of which he loses his jacket and a pair of pistols. Oberea offers tarpa cloth as a replacement and Banks notes in his journal, I made a motley appearance, my dress being half English and half Indian. This curious image of Banks, the educated, wealthy and youthful natural historian and substantial part funder of the Endeavour voyage, dressed in tarpa, is a potent one. <clears throat> Pieces of tarpa of all kinds, thick and waterproof, uh, but also light and like the finest muslin, made their way home after Cook's voyages, Banks' temporary garments perhaps among them. Following Wallace's lead, Cook wisely enshrined, enshrined in his rules for conduct in the endeavour that no sort of iron or anything that is made of iron or any sort of cloth or any other 
useful or necessary articles are to be given in exchange for anything but provisions. He was making that quite clear. The ill-fated Endeavour artist Sidney Parkinson depicts and describes the manufacture of uh, tarpa cloth in his engagingly written and posthumously produced journal. This thoughtful account controversially found its way into print, simultaneously uh, establishing the notions of tarpa and tattooing in European minds, but completely undoing the mind of his loving brother Stanfield, the troubled publisher of the unsanct unsanctioned account. In this Parkinson image, a native of Otaheite in the dress of his country, the bearded figure leaning on a staff is accurately depicted wearing tarpa, wrapped around his head in the form of a turban and around his waist as a maro, and covering his body as is a form of cloak. The engraving conveys the style of dress and the apparent practicality of wearing the much admired cloth. On the opposite page of the book, T Parkinson describes the party who visited them aboard Endeavour. He says, some people of distinction, their clothes, carriage and behaviour evinced their superiority. I never beheld statelier men. The man illustrated here was one of them. In his second illustration, a woman and a boy, natives of Otaheite, in the dress of that country, Parkinson depicts a local woman whom he describes in his account as small compared with the men. The woman wears an ahufara, a soft uh, tarpa shawl-like piece of clothing around her shoulders and a pow wrapped around her waist. The young boy with his pet bird balanced on his finger wears a maro. This image of a young boy playing his nose flute and wearing a fringed woven taputa has since become a posthumous remembrance of young Raitean Tayata, Tupaya's servant, who perished with him after visiting Batavia on the homeward leg. The imagery created by Parkinson and later by William Hodges and John Weber from Cook's second and third voyages respectively show Tahitians wearing tarpa cloth unadorned and not carrying the designs and leaf prints seen later. I actually photographed these later Tahitian examples in the British Museum's off-site store in, um, in London last year, just as a, as a now uh, counterpoint to what we're looking at tonight. Uh, the quality of tarpa produced also varied in terms of its fineness, and the sheets of fine cloth were felted together and bleached for the noblest wearers, the arai. The, the versatility, versatility evolved from the skilled craftsmanship of the makers who had refined their art and handed down the knowledge from generation to generation. The tuputa, poncho, made by common people were more rudimentary and sometimes felted together from pieces of existing clothing, uh, an example of sort of subsistence recycling, if you will. Parkinson wrote a lexicon of many Tahitian words which can be seen in part in the exhibition. He carefully records the name Ayuta or Morris Papyrifa. Right, I'll start that again. Or Morris Papyrifera or paper mulberry, I should have just gone with paper mulberry, as the plant responsible for the main source of tarpa production. And you can see it with the yellow line around it there. Um, he also names various dyes and colours used in its production, such as taihinu and itau, the, the leaves of which he notes are ingredients in their red dye or mati uh, for their cloth. So <clears throat> the information recorded in the young Quaker's posthumous re uh, account reveals a keen mind and a sharp eye for detail and adds considerably to the record of the Endeavour voyage. 
Parkinson not only described in prose what he witnessed, but also sketched in pencil an image, a woman scraping bark to make cloth, which is seen down the bottom here. The process is described in Banks's journal, where Tahitian women sit in running water and scrape the bark against a smooth wooden board with a shell until the outer bark is eroded and only the fine fibres of the inner bark remain. In another drawing, um, also seen here, uh, Parkinson records four women beating cloth. The process of beating the tarpa into cloth is time-consuming and can require many people using, as Banks records, a hardwood batoon, grooved on each of its four faces with varying sized ridges used from largest to smallest, turning it around, in succession to create the patterned tarpa cloth. Parkinson's drawings are the first by any artist to accurately document the laborious process of assembling tarpa from its constituent materials. This apparently innocuous engraving of a view of Matavai Bay in Otaheite from One Tree Hill was originally drawn by Parkinson and featured a depiction of himself seated under the tree, an etoa. Uh, the Tahitian vantage point was hammered with shells on Wallace's earlier visit, resulting in significant deaths and injuries. The print engraved by James Barillet carefully omits the figure of Parkinson, but retains a crucial character, that of a sailor on the far left, as you can see here, who has traded a large swag of tarpa, presumably for nails, and carries it off over his shoulder. The seemingly unremarkable image simultaneously knits together two fateful voyages, erases an official artist from the historical record and celebrates the dominion of one British explorer by making visually concrete the explorer at the exploration and documentation undertaken by Cook and his men, all while one of his sailors carries off some loot. William Hodges was the first classically trained artist to travel with Cook. Participating in the Navigator's second voyage, undertaken to seek further proof that the, great fabled, the, the fabled Great South Land did not exist, Hodges' exotic imagery worked up from sketches gave substance to the descriptions that would be later published. The library's engaging drawings, Portrait of Tainemai, Princess of Raiatea, Odidi and Utu, King of Otaheite, all three from the Society Islands and completed in 1773, hint at the tarpa cloth worn, although only Utu is depicted wearing a fringed taputa <coughs> bearing some patterning. The, this drawing of an unnamed subject, a Tahitian wearing a cloak, appears to document hobu, the white fine form of tarpa worn as a cloak solely by the powerful Arai. This now faded watercolour entitled Otaheite depicts another use for tarpa. Here bark cloth is associated with the rituals surrounding Tahitian mortuary practices. In this landscape we can see a body wrapped in tarpa lying on a tupapau, a funeral platform under a thatched roof. Hodges has stylised the scene and a muscular onlooker is added for both scale and poetry. Hodges has draped the tarpa winding sheet below the platform so that it appears to catch the light attempting to give it a sense of translucence, its whiteness clearly prized, especially in such an important ritual use. In some later instances described by Cook, the tarpa would be changed and the corpse undressed and then redressed by attendants. A first-hand witness to British firepower was Mai. 
a young Raiatean man who was wounded in the invasion by Wallace. In 1773 on Wahine, uh, Mai was asked Tobias Furneaux, the captain of uh, the Adventure, which was visiting the island, if he might travel to England. Mai, or Omai as he became known, was middle-ranked nobility, a member of the Ra Atira, uh, and a political refugee from his uh, home, which had been overrun by the people of Bora Bora. He sought guns and revenge. Furneaux agreed against Cook's reservations about Mai's political intentions. The 22-year-old travelled lightly, it seems, carrying only his tarpa cloth, his fly whisk and iri, a carved wooden headrest for sleeping. Three days after his arrival, Mai met King George III, King Tosh, as he addressed him, and Queen Charlotte at Kew. Such was the impact made by the celebrity that images of him began to circulate very shortly after his arrival. A keen observer, socially adroit and a good mimic, over the next two years he charmed many of those he met in the British elite. Mai was generously supported by Joseph Banks and in return on one occasion he cooked his patron a meal in a dugout earth oven. Together they shot game, played cards and swam at Scarborough. Eventually, though, Mai expressed a desire to return to Raiatea. Princely images of him elegantly swathed in tarpa remain as a permanent reminder of his English experiences. In this now well-known engraving by Bartolozzi, Mai stands before a self-possessed, tattooed, almost completely enveloped in tarpa, both plain and patterned. Only his feet, hands and head are visible. The image was taken from a drawing by Nathaniel Dance and printed in October 1774. The black and white image of Mai's multi-layered tarpa clothing reveals not just how he wore it, but also that he might have been feeling the cool English autumnal weather when the portrait must have been taken. Mai also had his oil portrait taken wearing brilliant white and cream bark cloth and a white tarpa turban, but without his eerie, by the famous British painter Sir Joshua Reynolds, a pioneer in producing images that supported the cult of celebrity. This portrait hung in the Royal Academy in 1776 and it would become Reynolds' most famous and valuable work and he kept it throughout his whole life in his studio. Um, of course, Mai often wore the English attire tailored for him and Dance's subsequently engraved image suggests both his and perhaps Banks's desire to project to his London friends an image of power and prestige that went beyond Mai's middling station in Tahitian life. But this is not so much a classicised image of a noble savage wearing a form of, uh, of toga, rather the Tarpa costume Mai wore for both Dance and Reynolds could well represent his aspiration to be seen as one of the powerful Raiatean Arai class. Presumably Mai took this engraved image back with him to suggest to his countrymen his importance in another realm. Mai returned to Raiatea but not to vanquish his oppressors as he'd hoped. Instead he died from illness unrequited in his desire for re revenge aged only 29. His many possessions which he had received from British friends were appropriated and his tarpa clothing was no doubt burnt as part of the required funerary processes. Mai's life was to continue, however, through these elegant images and a posthumous life on the stage. Cook was charged with the responsibility of returning the Raiatean to his homelands and then secretly setting off in search of the fabled Northwest Passage. 
It was to be Cook's final voyage, but the two men's lives would become entangled again, this time on stage in London's West End ten years later. Visiting Tahiti for the third time, Cook and his men met with Chief Otu or Two. They witnessed further dances or haver, and more troublingly, a ritual of human sacrifice. John Webber, the painter appointed to Cook's last voyage, left a considerable legacy of remarkable images and is re represented in the exhibition with two engravings after his drawings and a major oil portrait. Webber's A Young Woman of Otaheite Bringing a Present has become one of the best known images from all of Cook's voyages. In it we can see ritual gift giving intended to appease the relationship between visitors and local people. It must have been light relief following the gruesome protracted sacrificial events enacted only days earlier. The young woman, an ati, one who offered such a tarpa gift, appears in what seems to be a rather theatrical view, wearing both a dress, a large swathe of wrapped tarpa cloth, and two taomi, ceremonial but also protected feather gorgets, gifts for Cook and Clark. In his journal, Cook commented that the tarpa was held up over the girls' heads while the remainder was wrapped around them under the armpits and then the upper ends were let fall and hung down in folds to the ground over the other and looked something like a circular hooped petticoat. Cook went on to write that the hole was not less than five or six yards in circuit and was as much as the poor girls could support. The image then is not a theatrical trope, but instead a record of what must have been a rather remarkable and memorable moment. However, there were actually two women and the, the presentations were occurred on board the ship rather than on land. This image, Weber's A Dance at Otaheite, engraved by Sherwin, was created as a composite view of Tahitian dancing. Nevertheless, it seems an accurate depiction that clearly illustrates the complex ruched and fanned tarpa costumes that the Tahitian dancers wore. And also gives you a sense of the amount of tarpa cloth that's in the audience. It's wrapping the instruments, it's, everybody's wearing it. In December 1785, an educative pantomimic spectacle named for Omai and focused on Cook's voyages and achievements opened to great success in London's West End. <coughs> Omai, or a trip around the world, promised much on its marketing materials and delivered possibly more. It featured a procession, exactly representing the dresses, weapons, and manners of the inhabitants of Otaheite, New Zealand, Tanna, etc., etc., and the other countries visited by Captain Cook. The revolutionary ringleader of this ambitious farce was Philippe de Lauterberg, who coordinated the team, including Weber. To entrance, uh, to entrance the London audience with special effects and stunning sets and costumes. In the library's collection are 18 of de Lauterberg's watercolour designs for some of these costumes. I've included two to suggest how the observations of Weber and others were recreated on stage and in print and how original tarpa was augmented or ignored by de Lauterberg so as to dazzle in the theatre footlights. While verisimilitude in design was stressed by the show's marketers and assumed by the reviewers and audience, the costumes and sets blended reality with illusion, both for effect and to create wonder. And it should be remembered the final scene of that spectacular was Cook being raised up to heaven in the apotheosis scene. 
on stage. Um, here we can see how Weber's A Young Woman emerges via de Lauterberg as the present woman of Otaheite. She's now daubed with pretty pastel tones and wears a ribbon-trimmed bodice arm and wristbands. Her breast is modestly covered and she's shown wearing ballet shoes. Weber's earlier engraved image, centred on a major tarpa gift, is now subverted into a balletic image of a hoop-skirted dancer appearing to wear bad fake tan. Similarly, the tall, bushy-haired figure uh, depicted by Hodges in Utu, King of Otaheite, is seen appropriately robed, but the tarpa colouring seems rather imaginatively applied. The imagery from Cook's Voyages was continually mashed up and then represented to consumers in popular magazines and journals and, as we see here, on stage for the edification of a willing audience but also to convey the expansionist messages of the British Empire. Uh, I won't speak about the two Weber oils, one of which is in the gallery downstairs and one of which is in the Cook exhibition. They were much loved by the collector, Rex Nankervell, who bought them, giving one NK1 his first number in his catalogue. But I'm happy to speak about them in the gallery afterwards if anyone's interested. <clears throat> to conclude tonight, I want to briefly relate one of the most affecting stories in the exhibition. Significantly, it is completely illustrated with visual material from Nankervell's collection. The story also has a surprising link to Tarpa. I've written about this in some detail in the catalogue, so I give a very abridged version here to illustrate the passage of Tarpa between worlds and the hidden story as much of this portable material holds or can hold. In 1822, in an effort to foster imperial ties, Britain sent the gift of a schooner, the Prince Regent, carrying the missionary uh, William Ellis to Hawaii's Leo Leo, or King Kamehameha II. Leo Leo had acceded the throne in 1819 after the de death of his father, and the young king decided to travel to England to meet George IV with Queen Kamamalu, his half-sister and the favourite of his five wives, to seek protectorate status for the islands. They were accompanied by High Chief Boki, and Chief, uh, High Chief S, Kuini Liliha, and by a retinue of other chiefs and retainers. The Royal Party arrived in London on May 1824 and caused considerable interest in the press with numerous images appearing of them undertaking theatre visits. How... Sorry, did I miss... I think I missed that one out. Um... However, the papers were sometimes openly derisive or patronising about their visit. The Times reported that King Kamehameha could have achieved his ambition just as well and learned more of British democratic institutions by staying at home. Very open-minded. Hence Brexit, I suppose. Um, while the King and Queen were in London, oil portraits by John Hayter were taken, which I just showed you before. Sorry, those ones. Uh, and then quickly rendered as prints for public consumption. These two lithographs, also by Hayter of the strikingly tall and commanding figure of Queen Kamamalu, are on exhibition. The first of Tamahamalu, and they couldn't cope with their names, so they just spelt them however they wanted to, pretty much, um, show her wearing the turban, which was a hit, apparently, and much copied. 
The second portrait by Hayter is simpler and the lithograph states that her age was 22 years and that the original drawing was taken expressly at the wish of Her Majesty. Clearly, Kamamalu desired a likeness, no doubt, to take home with her. While in London, they stayed at, in Osborne's hotel where they were swamped with oglers wanting to catch a glimpse of the copper-coloured royalty. All in all, it was a giddy whirl of events and meetings. They attended a grand ball and later visited the Royal Military Asylum in Chelsea, a school for orphans. It appears that during the visit, the king and queen may have contracted measles, to which they had no immunity. They became ill and slowly deteriorated and died within six days of one another. The talented and likeable Captain George Byron, cousin of the poet, was charged with the responsibility of returning the bodies of the King and Queen to Hawaii aboard HMS Blonde. On board was Surgeon William Davis and artist Robert Dampier and various naturalists including Andrew Bloxham, brother of the ship's chaplain Richard. Nankavell collected numerous items seen in the exhibition connected with this poignant story, including a superb collection of rare early Hawaiian carpa cloth. The folder holding the carpa carries an inscription acknowledging that the samples were collected by Dr Davis, the blonde surgeon, and given to a friend. Within the folder, there are 38 samples in pristine condition, spanning a good a deal of the range of Hawaiian carpa cloth the most diverse production in the Pacific. From bright yellow turmeric dyed samples to delicately patterned diaphanous white samples through to many shades of brown to almost red and to black textured pieces. They are stunning. But how exactly did Davis acquire such a varied bounty? Reading artist Robert Dampier's account, I found the unlikely answer. It seems that Boki's brother, High Chief Karamoku, also known as Kalinamoku, who's pictured here and you saw earlier, was gravely ill, suffering from dropsy. Surgeon Davis was called upon to treat his bloating and tapped him, perforating his abdomen to drain off large amounts of fluid, bringing the chief instant relief. In gratitude for his life-saving operation and other services, Davis was given many handsome presents and our carpa samples must have been part of these ritual gifts. The library is indeed fortunate to hold these fragile traces of an unlikely past encounter. Um, as an aside and a sort of footnote, I want to show you these two exquisite Hawaiian feathered cloaks connected to Kamehameha II's visit to England. The first is in the National Museum of Scotland. The second, until very recently, was in the National Museum of Rio de Janeiro, which burnt down recently. It was a gift from Kamehameha to Dom Pedro I, uh, the Brazilian emperor. Uh, the ship took a route via Brazil to London. This demonstrates that whilst remarkable finds within collections can still occur, we mustn't ever become complacent about funding and maintaining our key collecting institutions. The recent loss in Brazil is of global significance. <clears throat> the thudding beat of tarpa production across the Pacific might have dulled a little, but it still rings out today. The legacy of Cook and those who followed him has irrevocably changed island life. Not always for the worse, but certainly there have been many low points over the past 250 years.
In 2018, as we commemorate the 250th anniversary of the commencement of Cook's first epic Pacific voyage, the threats to the Pacific are much more global. Cook would no doubt notice the changes in the seas and places he once travelled. Tupaya and Mai would be shocked at the state of the ocean and the damage to their reefs and fish stocks. In a warming world subjected to rising tides and cyclonic winds, it has become clear that the toll we have taken on the planet has the potential to overwhelm even the errors and problems of the colonial past. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nat, for your presentation this evening. Thank you for sharing with us how TARPA is made, how TARPA was worn, the cultural significance of TARPA, and also as TARPA as a first tool in diplomacy 250 years ago. So thank you. We do have time for a few questions from the audience. Um, we've got a microphone, so if you have a question, please put up your hand and we'll hear from you. And as Nat said earlier, he will head down to the gallery shortly. So please join Nat in the gallery for more conversation or to ask any further questions about the items that we have on display in the exhibition. But first, an opportunity from you here tonight to ask any questions. Ask up. There's one. I've got one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Natch, I guess because you mentioned felting a couple of times and, you know, possible reuse of fabric, that made me think about whether any of the records tell us whether the production of tarpa was a household activity, a village activity, or was kind of um, at, at production level in some way, whether it had been factorised. So is there, there much that tells us the circumstances in which it's made, other than the fact that, of course, it's women making it? Well, it's interesting, um, and I can't pretend to be an expert about type of cloth production throughout the Pacific because it's an enormous area. Um, but it's sometimes made by, mostly made by women, but not always, um, sometimes made by men. Um, to produce a piece, as I mentioned, that was quoted as two metres by 42 metres long is almost incomprehensible. And the idea that you could... You know, these, these trees were usually only about a bit taller than me uh, and, and grown and regrown and grown and regrown and they're incredibly successful at doing that and they transplanted them from place to place. So the idea that you're taking something that at best might be about six foot long and then wet, felted... Uh, tends to sort of ferment and then done the felting process and beaten and beaten and beaten. It's a communal activity and what's, what happens is you have this enormous production. So, for example, if there's a, um, a special event, a special time of year, uh, a coronation, uh, a, you know, a funeral, they would make these, often make the huge pieces of tarpa cloth and then I think it's ironic in a sense while we kind of say, you know, aren't those people naughty to have cut up the tarpa cloth they collected in Cook's time and put them into books and put them into albums, etc. But in fact, people from the Pacific did exactly that. They cut up tarpa into pieces because everyone could take home a piece of this and be connected to that event. So, um, yeah, so it was a communal event, mostly done by women, but not always. And um, I think, you know, the volume of material, when you think of... 
heat and humidity and vermin wear and tear, the stuff was going to wear out. So either they were replenishing it by refelting it or they were starting afresh. And you just think, you know, they were continually... And hence the comment from the person who's, you know, the English person who says it was like the thud of the, you know, the threshing in the fields because it was just happening night and day. It must have been a bit mind-boggling, actually, a bit sort of challenging in some ways, living with the thud, thud, thud. But it also gave people an extraordinary range of creativity. So the fact that they could make these pattern pieces, they could be huge, they could be small, they could be worn, they could be wrapping babies, you know. It's an extraordinary production. And there are some fantastic books in this library on it that I can urge you all to, uh, when I've returned them, to um, <laughs> have, have a look at them because we've got some really new books as well. Yeah, hello. hello. How are you? You mentioned that the tarpa is one of the, you mentioned the tarpa is one of the earliest cloths. Uh, how do you do date that, or how can you compare it with, say, linen from Egypt or something like well, this? Well, I mean, it goes back to China thousands of years ago. So I mean, we're talking about something that's happening around the world in different forms. As you say, linen, linen gets perfected and made and greater and greater, and then cotton comes along, etc. But Thousands of years ago, it was being produced in China and that sort of uh, influx of people down through Melanesia and out into the Pacific thousands of years ago took that technique with them. Uh, so when you see a piece of sort of Japanese paper, you know, that kind of textured paper, it's essentially a form of tarpa, um, depending on what sort of trees they're producing it from, but the paper mulberry is quite popular uh, there as well. So they were... Um, they were in the business of producing cloth, papyrus in Egypt, but, you know, at the same time, you know, well, not exactly the same time, but people were making this stuff as they moved into the uh, Pacific. And, for example, there are Lapita age um, motifs on some things which carry through in tarpa cloth, and it's possible that people don't even know that the actual images that they're using on these cloths go back thousands of years to the Lapita migration. So it's a... It's an interesting continuum. And of course, white people came into it and interrupted it and then augmented it and then offered different sorts of cloth and you know, traded. I, I, I think in, in Susanna's show, she's here. In Susanna's show, one of the most interesting artefacts is almost prosaic to look at, but it's a little piece of red cloth about this big. And it was a piece of cloth uh, that Cook gave to the High Chief S uh, in uh, Tonga. Uh, 1773, I think. Um, it's just a little piece of cloth, and he obviously... <laughs> and because anything red in the Pacific um, was highly sought after, like you can see these wonderful cloaks, um, and it was hard to obtain. So, you know, these cloaks are made from small numbers of feathers from individual birds, which they would then let, let go and then bring back, pluck two more yellow feathers. And, you know, so they're a huge amount of work and very precious as a result. But so red cloth is something that was very important. And you can see this starting at the very beginning that, you know, things like um, the people of the Pacifics were opportunistic in the sense they saw these people just invading and turning up. They had food, they had weapons, they had iron uh, implements, they had all sorts of things. You know, they had rats and a whole range of other things as well. So there was a trade, but they were also stealing things, you know, very carefully, cleverly, stealing things like Banks's shirt and his guns. Um, and, and then, you know, they get into this sort of um, 
interesting um, trade, if you like. So something like a piece of red cloth would be incredibly valuable to the person who had it, you know. And so that's interesting. And I'm, it's kind of nice that that piece of cloth made its way back into the library after, you know, 150 years or whatever it was. But <clears throat> I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, I tried to. Anyone else? Yeah. Nat, thank you for your talk. Um, I just noticed something in an, in an image as you were showing it, and I wondered whether you'd ever come across... A, it, it appears that they've got the mallet with the lines incised in it, in yep. different sizes, but they're actually beating across an incised block, like one of yeah, those look, very... Sorry, I, I, I didn't go into it in great detail. I, but I, when, I was looking at, when I was looking at the stuff in the show, yeah. I was intrigued by how they could get such straight beating lines, you know, yeah. how those lines could be so beaten. If you were beating with something this way, you would never be able to make no. it. But so it's obviously it's, yeah. As you can see here, this is supposed to be Karamoko's wife, Lika Lika, who I don't think was probably in the type of production game. I think she was probably had people to do it for her. But... So this is the, the image of his home, and I included it simply to show, you know, them wearing it, them beating it, that these amazing um, uh, anvils that they had, which were patterned and had different patterns on them, and the clubs, you know, the, the batons had different club, um, so you can end up with a different pattern on the top and the bottom. Um, you've also got this here, so shows you a piece drying in the sun. Have one of those Crispin could tell us where they are, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a few of those kinds of animals around. If you look at these images, um, you can see that the lady's got what looks like a rounded top of mallet. Yeah. Which suggests to me... Oh, thank you. Which suggests to me that the lady's in the earlier stage of production, but as Nat says, this lady would probably not be doing the production herself. But the anvil's got those wonderful grooved lines upon it. And part of it, when you look at the finer tarp cloths, is really just pressing down and getting that imprint. And it's a painstaking process. There's not much more I can add to it at the moment, though. And, I mean, you know, this, this, this connects into this one very small image. I mean, the actual print's not very big. Oh, cool. Sorry. Um, the print's, you know, this big. But it's an amazing amount of information, including a surfboard. I think this is a sort of a koi fermenter, I think, possibly. Uh, but, you know, all that data in that slightly later period uh, through French exploration, through Arago and Pelion. But, you know, the fact that they're showing these great wadges of cloth lying over more animals. So you just had this sense that it was just ongoing. They were making it all the time. It was something that, you know, people took great um, care over, but great pride in. So when they were exchanging things with Cook and sailors... Uh, when it wasn't a kind of exchange for a nail or a, some sort of, you know, gratification. It, it was symbolically and highly charged. I mean, they were kind of saying, we acknowledge your power. And, you know, when Cook goes to why we all know about, you know, they seem to think he's a god to begin with and then they kind of run out of patience with him when he comes back, unfortunately. But, you know, he was treated in this extraordinary way. So for him to be presented the kind of stuff that he ends up getting and then, of course, he dies. So all that material then gets divvied up between people like King and others on the, on the boats. Um, yeah, so it's extraordinary. But because it is 
fragile and not, um, you know, robust material. You don't expect it necessarily to last forever and uh, we're lucky to have what we have. So that big carpet cloth that Nankerville bought, which has got a provenance going back to uh, Cork, is in extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinary. Although I don't know if you noticed this, I put in note for cigarette because you can't really see it, but Harry's got a fag hanging out of his <laughs> fingers here and I'm thinking, you know, we get so caught up about how we handle our treasures and there's Harry with cigarettes sort of smoking with the tarpet cloth having just acquired it, uh, Rex having just acquired it. Sure. Thank you. You just touched on the question I was going to ask, and that's the durability of of tapa cloth. Uh, I suppose that was which was worn would you know could wear out or be destroyed when the individual died or something. But the ceremonial pieces that were stored away and used for exchanges and things would they have been subject to you know infestations of beetles or something and rats, animals? Yeah, I mean I don't. You know, there's a sort of sense in which there's constant movement around this stuff, though, that, you know, people are wearing it, they're producing it, they're using it as room dividers, they're sitting on it, they're eating on it, they're, you know, they're wrapping themselves up. Um, Crispin makes a point in the essay, they're talking about there's a sort of uh, a duna, a duvet-type arrangement where they kind of do multiple feltings and sort of have different layers of cloth. So, you know, it was incredibly... Um, various production. The problem is that it couldn't last that long and if you had a good downpour, well then you got a problem. In, in there, I don't know if you noticed, but when I put up the slide of um, Sidney Parkinson's um, account, he names a particular um, plant substance which was used to waterproof the cloth. So they had a way of uh, making things at least temporarily waterproof, you know, by putting this glaze on it which would then make it sort of stiffer. And if you look down in the exhibition, we've just done page turns about a week ago of the exhibition, there's one piece in the books that sit, sits up like the pages like that and it's sitting up like that and you can see it's obviously a piece like that that's very uh, layered and, and stiffened to be used for more durable purposes than uh, you know, the light sort of muslin-like pieces. Oh, sorry. Hello. Thank you. Did each person that helped make the cloth then go away and pattern it themselves? Like each family do their own pattern or was the cloth patterned and then cut up? Um, did different families have different patterns? I think it would be very variable depending on where you were, what the ceremony was, what the circumstances exactly. But no, I think they... If I can just show you something which is interesting, and we've got two people in the audience who know about this, but no one else does at this point, I think. Um, the sorry, if I'm making you feel a bit. I put this in because we have two um, very lovely um, patrons and friends of the library who came in to see the show, and I took them around uh, recently, and. Um, uh, Neville, who's here, um, said, said, sent me this photograph of this piece of tarp, and it's about two what, metres by, you know, a metre wide. It's fantastic. It's Fijian. Um, it's a great-looking piece of um, Marsi, as it would be called in uh, Fiji. Um, and basically, 
the Queen came to Fiji in 1953, and what did they do? They rolled out large, large sheets of patterned tarpa for her to walk on, so as a kind of, you know, symbol of respect for the Queen. And um, Neville lived... You don't mind me saying this, do you, Neville? I hope. He lived in Fiji, and, and this was sort of part of his family history, witnessing this. Um, and uh, subsequently, um, even um, putting together an album wrapped in tarpa cloth, which is beautiful, which features all this extraordinary material and documents this moment in time when the Queen, as the young regent in 1953, goes to Fiji. So, I mean, you know, um, I don't know if you get a sense of it there. You can see how long <laughs> that piece of tarpa is, and it's going to keep going and going and going. So, um, it would be, I suppose, you know, some pieces would be more um, decorated than others, I suppose, is, you know, it's a bit hard to say, really. Certainly, the Hawaiian carpa that you that you find some of it's extraordinary, and the and the detailed sort of um, patterning of that is pretty remarkable. Um, but that rock, you know, that was almost the first tradition to sort of die out in a sense. I mean, it's kind of come back a bit, but but uh, you know, the th they were very uh, ready adapt uh, adopters of Christianity, and I think a lot of those things counted against production. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Nate. Um, so you'll head down to the gallery. Yeah, yeah. So if people would like to join us in the gallery, please do. Nat will be there to answer any further questions that you might have. Nat has mentioned tonight a couple of times the publication that goes with this exhibition that includes essays written by Nat, uh, written by Erica and by Crispin. It's available in the exhibition gallery tonight. Um, we would invite you to make a modest donation or perhaps even an outrageous donation if you'd like to read further about tarpa cloth. So thank you very much for coming and joining us tonight um, and we hope to see you again soon at your National Library. Please thank Nat again. Thank you.